Jackie Mass Presenters Orchestra presents Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In this final game of the World Series, one of the most dramatic ever played. And the tension still holds. Uh, the bases are still loaded, and the batter is Jackie Robinson. Marshall, center field leading off for the Red Sox. Jackie Robinson, the defending batting champion in the league's most valuable player. Hitting fifth, Yogi Berra, catching. I tell you the truth, it's just gotten to the point now where it's just past tense. Even though we're playing in the present. This is a special bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. You may remember that in the fall of 2018, Lady Science published a special series about sports, science, and gender. We ran some really amazing pieces like Anna Goshua's essay on advanced analytics in women's basketball. Stephanie Springer uh, wrote about gender and the science of traumatic brain injury in football. Ciara Healy has a piece uh, about roller derby and the International Olympic Committee. You can read Christopher Mulvey's media history of masculine fitness culture. And Kathleen Bakinski wrote a great piece about protective technology in the history of hockey. So you can read all of these pieces and more, of course, at ladiescience.com. This episode of the podcast is my conversation with Laura Shear and Alexis LaMarche about one of our favorite topics, baseball. So we talk about statistics and the myth of objectivity, a very engaging study of player attractiveness, and a little bit about our experiences being women fans of baseball. So I hope you enjoy listening to this special bonus episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And P.S. It's Bat Flip Season. Spread the word. I have with me today uh, Laura Shear, is a Nationals fan and co-host of Resting Pitch Face podcast, who can occasionally be found writing for Baseball Prospectus's Short Relief. She is a graduate student with a background in biological anthropology and biomedical research. Hi, Laura. Hi. Very excited to be here. Excellent. And with me today also is Alexis LaMarche. And she's a Cardinals fan and a communications student at Webster University in St. Louis. And she's written for fan graphs as well as Cardinals blog, St. Louis Bullpen. And she currently writes over at her own site, Pinch Hero. Hi, Alexis. Hi. So thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I thought we could start with just sort of the basics about your sort of relationship to the game, why you love baseball. Maybe you could tell us, like, you know, your favorite player of all time or your favorite player from last season. Stuff like that. Whoever wants to go first. Okay, I'll start. Um, I like baseball personally because it gives me a lot of opportunities to learn. Um, and I have found in the eight, nine years that I've been following baseball, that there's this huge community. Um, so there's this great sense of community that comes with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely, when I started following baseball, was really amazed by, it, especially like the, like baseball Twitter, 
and how active and sort of awesome everybody is well for the most part (laughs) yeah what about you laura um i would echo what alexis said about the community that's definitely something that's really really important to me um one of the things that makes baseball specifically really fun for me is how many of my different interests it brings together and then of course it has this incredible community associated with it so you know there are people doing incredible work around science and statistics in baseball, then there's the whole history and culture aspect of baseball. Um, People are always talking about gender and inclusiveness and diversity, and there are all these different aspects of the game that are brought together in the community that are all different kinds of things that I'm really interested in. And you can kind of find any of that. You know, there's even musicals about baseball. You can't say that about a whole lot of other sports. I think Bandit Like Beckham is the only musical I can think of that's about a sport that's not baseball whereas baseball has two or three musicals about it. And so you can really, anything that you're interested in, there's going to be a tie-in to baseball. And so it kind of pulled me in that way. Um, And then the game itself, I don't know what it is, but I think all of us can agree that there's something about the game itself that once it gets under your skin, once it gets in your blood, you're not leaving anytime soon. Yeah, and I guess for me, I just started watching baseball with my dad when he... uh, a few years ago, just like out of nowhere, sort of, I think he was just like always a baseball person, but didn't really either have time for it or he didn't, uh, I think he probably just didn't have time for it, but uh, he just sort of all of a sudden started watching baseball and everyone was like, oh, this is a thing that you do? I didn't <laughs> know that. And so I just sort of was casually watching with him and he's really good at explaining things and he would just teach me about the game then you know he totally created a monster I'm way more interested in baseball even than he is now (laughs) uh so it was like a good bonding experience for us and then uh like you said it really does intersect with a lot of things I'm interested in particularly I'm a historian so there's just no shortage of interesting (laughs) historical aspects of baseball I guess and uh there is now a little bit of baseball in my dissertation which is about the space program uh so hopefully it's not too sort of like an obvious (laughs) self-indulgent thing (laughs) um okay so I guess what we want to sort of focus on today is science and gender and baseball uh and I think there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about, but I thought a good place to start would just to be, just to talk about the most basic, I guess, intersection of science and baseball. Like, What is the role of science in baseball in a general sense? And there are lots of things that we could spin off from that, but, you know, where should we begin? Um, Yeah, I think that science gives us a different way to look at the game. Um, I think it's allowed us to make improvements, especially in player performance and player health, player recovery, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can talk a little bit about like, is there in the history of baseball, can we, is there like a timeline of like science becoming more important to the game? And I suppose there's probably some backlash to that, right? Yeah, I would say it depends on sort of what you include under the umbrella of science, but I think statistical analysis as well as player performance, could both fall under that. And both of those things have definitely changed over time. 
um, to spin off what Alexis was saying about some of the player recovery to start with, um, you know, there's a big difference between Babe Ruth's era and now in terms of the physical performance and physical state of these athletes from a biomechanical perspective, from a medical perspective. Um, it's really changed. Pitching velocity has gone up as a result of that. Power hitting has gone up as a result of that. And that's really a combo of training and biomechanics and a better understanding of the medical aspects of athletics, I would say. It's a cultural thing as well, um, I would say, right? Like a, there's a shift in just what players are expected to understand about their own bodies and the sort of way they're supposed to think about their jobs as being as maintaining their bodies in a certain way. I'm talking over the long haul, not like in the last 10 years or something. Yeah, I no, that. I would definitely agree with that. And I think that the changes in the timeline of player development as well, um, and there's certainly a lot to criticize there in terms of the young age at which these kids are specializing in baseball and being really intensively developed as baseball players. And there is more and more evidence that there are harms to that. Um, but in addition to the harms that are now starting to become understood, that's also been part of the reason, you know, if these kids understand at a young age how their bodies work, how they can use their bodies to create these high performance adult athletes that they're going to grow into, um, that has had a huge impact on the game in the last few decades as well. Yeah, I would argue that at one point the game, I wouldn't say it was more casual, but it really was more of a game. And then you start to see this shift where it's about money. It's about it being a legitimate sport, legitimate professional sport. And the attitudes towards bodies and performance has definitely shifted as a result. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's like, I think that's it's interesting to posit the difference between or the shift between thinking of something as a game and as a sport. Uh, has to do with these kind of ideas about um, bodies and like the optimization of the body, you know, to play a sport versus a game. Right. Yeah. I mean, Babe Ruth probably never heard the word optimization in his life. He was going out and getting drunk and then seeing what would happen if he swung a bat. And because he was Babe Ruth, the answer was usually good things, but, <laughs> there's definitely been a major change in approach since then and he's not the only one he's just perhaps the most obvious example yeah I would argue even up through the 50s you get Mickey Mantle who also was was similar in the way that he had no regard for his physical health uh, and you see that trend I think it started to probably shift maybe 70s, 80s, 90s well, it's an interesting shift. Era. Yeah, it's an interesting shift going into the steroid era because it was certainly a different approach to performance, um, but one that was very much limited by the fact that people were getting away with it. And so that's a huge controversy now. And frankly, it's, you know, that's not really about health. That's kind of separating player optimization from health because in the long run, those kinds of medications were really terrible for your health. I mean, you could get heart problems, you could get hormonal problems. Um, and so now I think people try to make it more so that optimization of a player isn't 
completely contradictory to that person's health, or at least they try to make it sound like that's what they're doing. Right. You know, obviously that's not always true. But in the steroid era, there was really no question. If you knew what people were taking, people knew what it was doing. People knew what what kinds of consequences they were going to suffer for their health, but that wasn't the point. Whereas now, at least they're pretending to care about the player's health, which is that better if they're not really taking care of players any better necessarily? I don't know. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that thought. And I think if we think of, if we go beyond performance, um, as we mentioned earlier, statistics, um, I think that's also something that came about relatively early in sports as well, in the 70s. Yeah, and so Anna, I think what you were getting at with some of the backlash is the way statistics have changed from the early descriptive statistics that have been around for as long as the game has versus this whole concept of advanced statistics, statistics that are going to give us some insight beyond just counting how many runs the pitcher allowed and then dividing it by nine and that (laughs) telling us something. Um, The idea that we now have these advanced statistics that tell us how the pitcher was really doing and beyond that, tell us how the pitcher is going to do tomorrow or next year or five years from now, or at least say that they're telling us that. And so that's the really big shift. And that's the shift that has in certain ways started to um, take down the old scouting industry where it was these scouts whose professional judgment was subjectively used to decide who they thought was going to be a good player in five, 10 years. Whereas now we have these advanced statistics that supposedly do a better job of telling us that. And in some ways they do, but in some ways... You know, I think you were talking about beforehand some of the the objective versus subjective concept behind these stats. And we have this idea of statistical objectivity. And these statistics are really presented as if they're objective. Um, But I think one of the big questions and debates that people have who really get into the weeds of these statistics is, are they truly objective? How can you tell what does that mean and what are you trying to get from them if they are? Right. And what's the lasting power of some of these statistics? Because we've had some advanced statistics come up, you know, maybe a few years ago or so, and suddenly they're not, they're not good. You know, we start to see the flaws in them. And maybe part of that is the objectivity versus subjectivity of them. For sure. I think you're right. There are definitely fads in these advanced statistics that people come up with. Um, Baseball Prospectus has a new one. Wins above replacement was a big thing when it came out. And now there's like three different versions and offensive is better than defensive. And everybody argues about what goes into it. Um, And then at the same time, people, when they fit their point, present them as if they're just solid fact and there's no arguing with them. So there's definitely a difference between what people do with them when they're just trying to learn about predictive models versus what people do with them when they're trying to prove their own point. Right. You know, I think one of the interesting things about baseball, whether you love it or you hate it, is that the game itself is inherently subjective. 
when you're talking yeah. about the strike zone and everybody's calling for robot umpires, well, we don't have them yet. We have umpires who are human who make different calls in different scenarios. We have ballparks that are wildly different sizes and shapes from each other. And there are models out there that try to control for all of that. And some of them do better than others. But at the end of the day, there can't ever be, in my opinion, a truly objective statistic about a game where the rules themselves are subjective. Yeah, um, I think there's a strong human element to baseball. And I think, as you were saying, to the point of um, certain stats and everything else being subjective, I was thinking about defense. And a lot of our defensive metrics up to this point are still, they're not very good. Mm -hmm. Um, We still haven't figured out how to best evaluate players defensively. And part of that is because you have things like the shift. And then beyond that, when you want to account for errors and everything, that scores discretion. Yeah. So it's the very fundamental numbers that we have, like how many errors a player has made. That's completely subjective. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, there's a strong human element that underlies the most fundamental knowledge about the stats we have. Yeah, I would add, just in case any of our listeners here aren't familiar with how a scorer decides if a play is an error or not, it depends on the scorer's idea of whether or not the play that that person was making was routine or whether it was not routine. Yeah. And so I don't know if they've ever done studies. I would love to see them if they have, but I have a feeling that they haven't. Put a bunch of official scorers together in a room, show them the same clip, Don't let them talk to each other. Just have them mark down what they think it was. Routine play, not routine play. Error, not error. And then repeat it over and over again and see how much variation you get. Yeah, I definitely think that would be an interesting study to do. To see how much variation there is, even between the official scores. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Major League Baseball would not like that study to be done. (laughs) No. Um, Which is a major problem in terms of understanding these things. You know, when the governing body that controls the staff, the proprietary data, or governing bodies, plural, really, when you talk about the individual ball clubs, um, but when they have a vested interest in not allowing certain analyses to be made, that just adds another layer of subjectivity. Because, you know, there are all kinds of studies that people have done based on umpire behavior, balls and strikes, ejections, um, because that's visible on the field. And so at least the vast majority of it, you can look at and say, this is what happened. But the official scorers work in a little bit more mystery than the umpires do. So I don't remember seeing much, if any, research on how that works. I'll have to look for it now. Um, because frankly, it hasn't occurred to me to look, but there's a lot of that sort of thing on umpires. There's much less data on official scores as far as I've seen. Yeah. I like what you said about it being very mysterious because what they're doing in, in scoring these plays, uh, is sort of doing this like weird divination of like, would he have caught the ball? Should he have caught the ball? Like, it's a very strange I think for 
maybe people who aren't as familiar with the game, or at least me, I guess, it just strikes me as just like, oh, that's just like the the hinge of scoring is just this strange sort of projection into a parallel future that never happened where he caught the ball or he did it, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. very quantum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah, it's like the superposition of all possible outcomes of a play. Uh, and then a person just makes a decision about that. And then we build, like you said, this whole sort of statistical model on top of this like strange quantum superposition of these mysterious scores. In a way, I really like that. I think that that's uh, along with like having human umpires who have very wildly different ideas of how big the strike zone is. I think that's one of the things that I actually like about baseball. But it does have interesting impacts for what we consider uh, objective data that we can collect about a game. Yeah, you have to be very careful, I think, when you analyze the game and you look at these statistics because you have to account for things like scores and umpires and the individual decisions that they've made. Yeah, I think the problem that I see in certain uses of these statistics, I don't have a problem at all with the fact that they're fundamentally subjective. I think that's just baseball. But I think yeah. one of the issues that comes up is when broadcasts, broadcasters, um, teams treat them like they're actually objective um, mm-hmm. and portray them that way to the fans in order to make whatever point they're trying to make. And sometimes it's, you know, the point that they're trying to make is benign. I would say this whole new resurgence of, not resurgence, just surgence, because it hasn't happened before, um, of these sort of projected catch percentages, which has really exploded in the last few years, looking at outfielders and their root efficiency running to get a ball. And then this supposed probability of them making the catch that they made. And that's based on computer models, and it's very complex, and it's a fascinating process of how they decide that. But it's not, it's not like these percentages were given by the baseball gods, and we know them to be true. Someone somewhere is modeling them and coming up with them. And then the right. broadcast is saying, this is the percentage, this is what it was. And there's no room for confidence intervals, and there's no room for, you know, this is how we came up with this in the first place. You just get this piece of information as a viewer. This was his catch percentage. And that I think is, is a problem in that people don't necessarily have the opportunity to hear where these came from. And so they just take them as fact. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there is sometimes this gap between what people who study the numbers know and there's like it gets kind of lost in translation, I guess in some ways when you try to communicate that with fans. As you said, it gets passed off as fact, and those who don't dig any deeper into it think, okay, well these are the newest, you know, coolest stats we have. They must be true. Yeah, and I don't see any problem with sharing those with fans. I think there's a certain amount no. of sort of gatekeeping, like oh people won't get it, people can't get it which I think is condescending and kind of silly. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's important to explain at least a little bit, oh, this is the kind of place that this is coming from. There's this 
lab that's doing this work. There's this company that's doing this work. Here's what they take into account. I think more people would be interested than a lot of the broadcasts give them credit for. Um, and I also think it comes into play. So something this off season that um, a lot of people have had strong opinions about is the free agent market. Um, and as well as that, the, the arbitration process where these players are negotiating salaries with their teams and all of that is ostensibly based on statistics. Right. And so when Michael A. Taylor goes to arbitration court with the Nationals over a $250,000 difference in what he wants versus what they want to give him, which in baseball money is an insultingly small amount of money for them to go to arbitration with him over, in my opinion. The kinds of things that they look at in arbitration court are who are players that have comparable stats to you and what are they getting paid? And what I don't know, frankly, is which stats they're looking at and how. Right. And what, you know, these are real people. These are real consequences. This is impacting how much money a player will get in arbitration or how much money a player will get offered as a free agent. You know, teams use these stats. And when viewers believe that these stats are infallible, or at least, if not infallible, truly objective, then they're more likely to think, oh, the team probably got it right. Because they're using data, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a sense that we can assign value to players, like a simple value based on these statistics. And I think, you know, that goes to your point with arbitration is that, well, you know, based on these stats, this is how much money you should be making. And for fans, it's like, well, you know, here's their war. Here's this. Here's how much they're worth as a result. Yeah, I think it can be dehumanizing, A. Um, and B, yeah, we, we kind of are told to just take this on faith. The team has the data. They know. And they're going to offer these people what they're worth. And what astounds me is how many people seem to side with the teams, particularly in the last couple of off-seasons where the free agent market has been so depressed. Some would say artificially. I would agree with them. (laughs) Um, But technically, that's alleged, I suppose. Um, You know, how many of these fans are saying, well, it's not, you know, Bryce Harper's not worth $400 Look at his stats. Manny Machado's not worth... I don't actually know how much. Maybe yeah, three hundred million. Um, Manny Machado is not worth X Y Z. Look at his stats. Um, and then with Machado, there's there's an added layer of this idea that people have about him being a bad clubhouse guy, not hustling, um, a lot of racist undertones that get into that. Um, sure. Sorry. Oh, I said for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so then that's a really interesting scenario where it goes beyond just the plain stats. Um, But it's definitely this whole thing where people are saying, you know, this person's not really worth this much money. Well, it's not your money. It's some billionaire owner. And objectively speaking, every team can afford these guys. There's no true salary caps in baseball. And at this point, the revenue is tied to the TV deals far more so than it is to the attendance, which I don't think everyone fully understands. And so you get into this weird 
situation where fans are acting like billionaire owners' money is limited and like they should somehow be the stewards of it. And then they're assigning value to players based on stats that they see as objective, which probably aren't objective because they're based on things that aren't objective. And that's kind of where baseball is right now, which is a really weird place for baseball to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. I find it personally incredibly frustrating when fans make these strange arguments based on what limited information we have. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, like, as you were saying with arbitration, like, we don't know what numbers they're looking at. We know they can't use StatCast data. So they're going to be looking at publicly available information. But we don't know what. We don't know what the player comps are. And frankly, we don't know how much these teams have. They don't have to disclose how much money they're making. You know, revenues are almost a mystery, save for what we know about the TV deals and such. So I find it very strange, as, as you were saying, when fans side with these billionaire owners. Yeah, I think you've I think you've really um, drawn out the ways that these like statistics and the perception of statistics as being objective, like that the really far reaching consequences that this is like this is a, an issue of like labor and labor organization, and uh, um, it touches on and impacts like. Um, the problems that we have in baseball with racism. Like I think this is really good sort of exploration of the way that like these things can have really far reaching impacts and they can be, um, they can be sort of deeply social and cultural in addition to, you know, the way we want to think of data as just objective numbers that we can have about stuff, but like the way that we use that information and the way we understand it as being, objective or subjective or where it comes from is super important. Yeah. And I would actually add one more layer to that um, in the area of racism, but that I haven't specifically mentioned yet. Um, My co-host on Resting Pitch Face podcast, Sydney, has done some really interesting data analysis on umpire ejections by race and ethnicity. And that's another thing. I mean, ejections are less of a specific stat when it comes to arbitration, as far as I know. Um, But what she's found pretty clearly is that um, umpires are much more likely to eject Black and Latino players for arguing balls and strikes than they are to eject white and Asian players. And then you get a number at the end of the season. You know, so-and-so was ejected X number of times. Um, and that one, like I said, it's it's less relevant in arbitration, but it happens to be a stat where we have some really clear data, thanks to Sydney, about what's happening. Um, and again, you know, things are subjective in baseball. The umpires have control over a lot of different aspects of the game. And if they're biased on ejections due to race and ethnicity, I'm not saying that I know that they're biased on other things, but we can't know that they aren't if we know that they're biased on ejections. And so that's another aspect of the the racism question when it comes into these subjective judgments by subjective people that then play into statistics that are used for very real life consequences like salaries, where we have 
pretty clear statistical proof, as clear as statistics can ever be, <laughs> that there are people who are treating players differently in a certain situation based on their race and ethnicity. And thus, we know that there's the potential for this to happen in other statistics that do affect people's salaries to a greater degree. Well, and yeah, I think that's, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that's a really important thing to keep an eye out for. And that kind of uh, impacts also like um, what you were saying about um, Machado being perceived as like not a good clubhouse guy or a heel or something that like, if you're a player who has like a bunch of, ejections like that plays into how fans like see you and uh usually in like yeah along sort of these racialized axes and uh umpires are the ultimate authority on the field and so that sort of contributes to these damaging i guess perceptions of players oh this is a guy who gets ejected a lot well he gets ejected a lot because he's you know a brown dude but (laughs) Yeah, because so he's, he's a doing, bad guy. He's doing the same exact thing that his white comrade is doing, and he's more likely to be ejected for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the the clubhouse aspect of it is a really interesting intangible. Um, that in some ways, going back to the idea of the battle between the objective statistical people and the dusty bakers of the world, <laughs> um, who which I think that's more of a stereotype than reality because when Dusty was the Nats manager he was no better and no worse than anybody else we've had. And we've had quite a few when it came to, as far as anyone could tell, following statistics rather than his gut. Um, But that's the stereotype that he gets at least. Um, But it's this, this perceived dichotomy between the statistics people and the old fashioned people. Oh, Jason Wirth was a clubhouse leader. So even though his on field statistics weren't that great all the time he was still really important to the team because of what he contributed to the atmosphere and i don't know how true that is because i've never been there but i think that kind of thing is this really interesting shadow land of well, we can't measure it yet mm-hmm. so we're just going to tell you when it doesn't suit us that you're making it up when it does suit us, we're going to say, okay, yeah, the intangibles, those are the things that statistics can't measure, but they're so important. So that's, I think that's a really interesting ground there because people ignore it until it serves their purposes not to. Um, and I can't imagine how we would measure it. But I mean, you know, 50 years ago, they probably couldn't imagine how we could measure spin rate. So I suppose you really can never say. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's also this idea that like uh, measuring things is in, you know, just the idea of measuring things and collecting statistics is good and objective and it's going to tell us all we need to know about a player until it doesn't. And then, oh, well, you know, there are just some things we can't measure. <laughs> and those are important too. And we just, there's this like wild sort of waffling between everything has to be measured and we have to have numbers for everything. But if they don't tell us what we want them to, we can just say, well, but he's a clubhouse guy. Yeah. And I, you know, I was a great fan of Jason Wirth, so I'm certainly guilty there. Um, But I think it's interesting when you see the broadcasts play into this. There was a lot of hoopla about this year's Cy Young Awards. Alexis, I'm curious if you saw this um, 
in the central as well, because I was mostly seeing the NL East, um, where the people who wanted Scherzer to win were presenting a certain set of statistics, and the people who wanted DeGrom to win were presenting a different set of statistics. And the fact is, if you want a certain guy to win the Cy Young, you can find statistics to support that. And they're not necessarily better or worse statistics. I mean, some of them clearly are. Pitcher wins is ridiculous. But (laughs) beyond that, you know, it's not necessarily clear which ones are the better statistics and which ones are the worst statistics for whatever it is you're trying to decide. And so there was this really clear bias. I mean, people put up screenshots next to each other of the stats that the Nationals broadcasts were putting up about Scherzer and the stats that the Mets broadcast was putting up about DeGrom. And they were all incredible statistics. But you really can pick which ones you want to use to prove your point, which, I mean, even if the individual stat is objective, even if ERA is objective, which is not, but even if it is, <laughs> um, you you can pick and choose. You can decide which ones you want to use to prove your point. Right, you can craft a narrative using statistics. And then... Were you saying that the broadcasts use different stats? What kind of impact does it have on fans' perceptions? You know, if if you know the Nats broadcast is like, well, here are these numbers. This is why Scherzer should win, and then the fans are going to be like, cool, yeah, of course he should win because of these stats. And then over on the Mets broadcast is the same with Degrom, and so you have this disparity again with them all being great stats, but coming at it from different angles i think people do know to a degree you know you see people making fun of every broadcast has some variation of oh here is harper's batting average in the seventh inning or later (laughs) in day games against a righty right and we make we make fun of it when it's that bad you know everybody will say oh and he's standing on one foot and it's a full moon and so when it's that egregious, everybody's making fun of it. But there's also situations where it's not that obvious. And so if you're not thinking about the information you're given, you might not realize that you're being given information to nudge your perception one way or another. And again, when it's about something arbitrary, that's fine. But when it's about something that's important and that impacts people's livelihoods, it's less fine. I think that's actually a really great way to segue into um, talking about women in baseball. Um, So for people who don't know, women do play baseball. (laughs) Imagine that. Um, This summer was the Women's Baseball World Cup, which was hosted in the U.S. for the first time in a long time or the first time. I don't remember. I didn't get to watch as much of it as I wanted to, but I did watch it. It was available to watch for free on YouTube. Um, And I thought we could just talk a little bit about, um, well, about women's baseball, but I'm also interested in, I saw a lot of discussion during the Women's Baseball World Cup about people would post um, videos and GIFs of the players to Twitter and were talking about their performance and stuff. And the one that I saw a lot of was um, Yami Sato, who uh, was the starter for Japan. And she's probably like the best woman baseball player in the world. And um, 
I saw a lot of stuff on Twitter and just sort of around about, um, I mean, your usual like gross troll stuff, but um, there was this sense that like some people seem to be sort of trying to like do some like good faith statistical analysis and like looking at the spin rate on her pitches and stuff. Uh, and, but then there are always, there's always like some reply guy being like, well, her fastball is only 70 miles an hour and she could never play against men, even though no one is even having that conversation. So I thought we could talk a little bit about, um, what happens in a sport that, um, doesn't have opportunities for women to play baseball. Like what happens when we sort of turn our statistical eye to, to women in baseball? Um, do you mind if I put on my anthropology hat for a minute? Please do. <laughs> so before we get into some of the specifics, I think Sato's spin rate is a perfect example to go into. Um, but I just want to um, kind of lay the ground for where I come from mentally with these kinds of issues, um, which is, you know, from a biological anthropology standpoint, an evolutionary standpoint, a cultural standpoint, um, we as a species have much less sexual dimorphism than other species, meaning basically that compared to, say, gorillas, male and female humans, talking about cisgender people here for the moment, um, are really much more alike than we are different. And so when you plot things on a graph that has to do with body size and anatomy and physiology, the averages are different, but they overlap far more than they don't. And so that's why you see men who are five foot two and women who are six foot two. We have these overlapping areas where there might be more men who are taller, but that doesn't mean that there aren't women. And I think one of the fallacies that it's really easy to fall into when you're talking about professional sports is to talk about averages for men and women, because you're not talking about average people when you're talking about professional athletes. And so if you're talking about your beer league softball games, then sure, that's a different story. You are probably talking about pretty average people when it comes to athleticism. But nobody in Major League Baseball is average. They're all far beyond the average for men. And so when you're talking about the idea of women professional baseball players, the idea that the average woman is five foot six or whatever it is, or five foot four, I think is actually the answer to that. Um, that's really not relevant as far as I'm concerned. What's relevant is what elite athletic women are capable of achieving, which is a completely separate question. And so my go-to on this, frankly, is always no one will ever be able to convince me that if you gave Serena Williams intensive baseball development from the age of five, Every resource that Max Scherzer had access to, every kind of training and conditioning that Max Scherzer had access to, I firmly believe that she would be able to throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and no one will ever convince me otherwise. And so I think it's, it's really important to recognize that when you're talking about average people versus professional athletes, those are completely separate conversations, and that culture really does impact player development which, I mean, men were only throwing 70-mile-an-hour fastballs 100 years ago, and now all of a sudden everybody's throwing 100. Well, that wasn't happening before. Something changed. And so when you're talking about women athletes 
and what they're doing now, we really don't know what women athletes could do in sports that they don't have access to great development in. If they actually had that access, we just don't know. And so I'm always 100% thrilled to talk about what Ayami Sato is doing now. But I never in a million years assume that that means that I know what she could have done if she had had access to the kind of player development that her male counterparts have had. And I think that's, that's an important thing to me to be on the same page about for any conversation about these differences between women's and men's sports. Yeah, I think that's a really salient point. And I think, you know, with them not having the same resources and then for all intents and purposes, way less exposure, um, fewer opportunities. We've kind of, we have this pervading sense that baseball is a man's sport. And so when we look at baseball, it's, it's all numbers um, regarding men. It's all men's statistics. It's what men have done in the game. And I think, you know, paired with the fact that women haven't had the same opportunities, the same development, it's incredibly unfair to try to compare, you know, years and years of stats for men to women. It's just we don't, like you said, we don't have, it's not the same opportunities. It's not the same resources. Yeah, and I'll just, just to give some examples, I mean, obviously, like people may know, I guess, even from personal experience that um, girls usually don't get to stay in Little League very long. Uh, They are either sort of pushed into softball or just sort of hazed out of the sport. I didn't even know that girls were allowed to play baseball when I was growing up. Uh, And then um, one thing that I learned last year watching the Women's Baseball World Cup is that the the women on the American team, they just sort of train by themselves um, and they don't have any, like, they're not getting paid to do that. And uh, in order to sort of uh, get in shape to try out for the team, they would like pay for themselves to fly across the country and meet with other players so they could train together, you know, just so you could have someone to catch a bullpen for you uh, and not have to, you know, be in your backyard. and that they don't have, these are like the best women baseball players in the country. And they are, you know, putting themselves in an, on an economy flight uh, across the country to like work out for a couple of days. So it's not like, it's not just that like maybe women's sports have less, you know, support or uh, even fan interest. It's that like for baseball, like it's basically non-existent. There is like no infrastructure to develop women baseball players. Yeah, and even in Japan, which has been dominating the Women's Baseball World Cup for years because they do have a league for women there, that's the best we have for women in the world, but it's still infinitely smaller than what's available for the men. And so, you know, you look at Sato, you look at the other players on Team Japan who are dominating all the other teams out there, and to me, I kind of go, oh my God, how much potential is there in this team in every team when even what we see as the pinnacle of women's baseball is still getting so much less opportunity than the pinnacle of men's yeah and I think even women who have made it to college and have been playing baseball for years 
they're still sometimes pressured into switching to softball. Even when they get to the higher levels, it's like, well, why don't you just play softball? You know, why are you trying to do this? And I think that's a big barrier as well. I know Kelsey Whitmore, um, who signed with the Sonoma Stompers. I think she played one season with them, Independent League. Uh, and she plays for Team USA. She was talking about how softball and baseball are different in how you have to train. Your swing's different. I mean, the field's different. The ball's different. Everything. And so, you know, regarding not having infrastructure, not being able to train, a lot of it is that, like, people want these women to switch to softball because it's this idea that, oh, they're the same. Just let them play softball. I think that's a really pervading notion as well. I wanted to ask if there are like medical or sort of like quote unquote scientific reasons given for why softball is a women's sport and baseball is like not suited to women. Like, are there like, we've talked a lot about um, sort of medical myths about, about women on the podcast and, um, in other sports, there's this idea that like women shouldn't do ski jumping because their uterus will fall out when they hit the you know, <laughs> ground. So I wonder if there are things like that in um, in baseball. Uh. Um, well, so a lot of it is like women can't throw that hard. And, you know, your mileage may vary on that. On the more medical side, one of the things that's always seems to be brought up in contact sports is the idea that if somebody slams into your chest, and you have breasts, you're more likely to get breast cancer. And A, I actually don't think there's clear data on that. I think if you want to find a case for it, you can, but it's not one of those things that there's actually clear evidence for or against. But the other thing is there's just not a whole lot of slamming into people's chests in baseball. And you could make the same argument about testicles. I mean, there have been some truly gruesome testicular injuries in baseball. Mm-hmm. And no one is saying that guys can't play it because their balls are going to get damaged, even though they are. Yeah, I think that's the myth that I've heard before as well. I think Laura could speak to it a lot more than I could. Uh, I think, yeah, there's just this idea that women are more fragile. And I think especially when you go back to baseball versus softball, it's like, well, you know, they're not going to have the same hand-eye coordination. They can't hit a baseball or whatever. They don't have the strength to hit a baseball. They can't throw as hard. They can't do this or that. So it's like, we'll put them in softball. You know, it's easier for them to see the ball, blah, 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 stuff like that. I don't think anybody's ever actually proven the eyesight thing. And so it makes no sense to me that softballs have to be bigger and neon. Like, I don't even know which <laughs> myth that comes from. It's not even a medical myth I'm familiar with. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard uh, about wi- <laughs> women not being able to see as well as men. That's a new one for me. Um, okay, so I think um, in the interest of time, I don't want to keep you guys too long, and I am also having a good time, and I don't want to bum everybody out. Is it all right if we skip the domestic violence thing? That's fine. For the- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Okay, because I do – I want to spend some time talking, especially about um, – your paper, Alexis, that you delivered at the Sabre Seminar last year about um, fan perceptions of um, player attractiveness and how that sort of correlates with 
their success as players. Is that a fair yeah. summary? Why don't you I think give, so. Yeah, why don't you give us sort of like a rundown on that research and maybe some of your findings and why you were interested to do that? I just think it's a really great uh, investigation. Yeah, let me start off by saying it was incredibly fun to do that project, especially in the survey portion where I was running around Saber Analytics, handing out a business card with a link on it. And I'm talking to people like Eno Saris and Brian Kenny. And I'm like, hey, take my survey on these baseball players. Vote, like, like choose the one that you think is more attractive. Thanks. <laughs> Pass it along. Um, but it was, it came out of this notion um there was, there's been previous research in football that quarterbacks are perceived as being more attractive. Um, it's the players you can see on the field. Uh, and then you go over to economic research, and there's this idea, and there's actually research suggests that more attractive employees get paid more for whatever reasons. So I took that kind of basis and looked at baseball and said, what if there is some correlation in baseball? And what if either A, somehow, some way, more attractive baseball players do better? Or B, fans' perception of players changes. Like their physical attractiveness is determinant on their performance. And unfortunately... The model ended up being pretty noisy, and there wasn't a lot of clear data. But there was, you know, after I ran regression, there was something to be said for um, their performance compared to are their 2017 D War and O War and their perceived attractiveness. So there was something to be said for maybe recency bias um, and stuff like that after. I ran the regressions. Uh, so I'm I'm interested in, I mean, you said that there, your model was noisy, so there wasn't like super conclusive stuff, but um, are there any like specific things that you found that you thought were really interesting? Who Who's the most attractive player according to your survey? <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually the most interesting part. Um, so... Maybe I'll give some background on how we selected the players first. Um, so it was like 10% of active players in 2017 who had played in more than 30 games. So we had 62 players. Um, they were randomly generated. And I think Kevin Kiermeyer was number one. As he should uh, be. Right. And then it was Nolan Arenado, of course. As he should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then for some reason... Three was Chris Heisey. Guilty. I, I'm sure I rated Chris Heisey more attractive than I, so I took the survey. And yeah, I'm think, sure that I rated Chris Heisey more attractive than whoever he was up against, mostly because I like Chris Heisey. Yeah, and so I think we had also, like, talked about that, my advisor and I, when we were doing this research. And, I, you know, when I presented, I kind of mentioned that a lot of – there might be fan bias as well. But – yeah, definitely Chris or Kevin Kiermeyer came out on top. We did ELO ratings uh, based on the survey results. And his ELO score was like 2,700 when 
average is 2200. So he was like a billion standard deviations above the norm. <laughs> so when I did the presentation and stuff, it was like, and here's our Greek god. <laughs> um, everyone else just is, you know, tagging along, but yeah. If I may, um, it this the whole idea of it brings up some really interesting ideas about women fans and kind of what we are and aren't supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would I would make a pretty clear distinction in this case um, between women fans and women professionals in baseball, um, and people who are criticizing either women fans or women professionals don't always make that distinction, but I think it's a really important one because, you know, women sports writers, women coaches, women, any kind of professional role within the game itself or reporting on the game obviously have the same standards of professionalism that anybody should have in their field of work. Um, You know, if you're interacting with a player, you shouldn't be doing anything that crosses a line sexually. And women professionals in baseball, I mean, the rates of that happening, as far as I know, are just incredibly low. But I think they're always getting accused of that because people can't seem to believe that women who are attracted to men could be watching and loving a game played by men without the only reason for them doing that being their attraction to the players. Um, And where I come down on that from the fan perspective, not from the professional perspective, is firmly in the camp of these things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. Um, Obviously, for for serious baseball journalists, for coaches, they are. Um, You can't at least talk and act on whatever you might be feeling towards the players because it's unprofessional. Um, But for fans, I mean, I could spend hours on baseball players butts and that in no way means that I understand the game any less that in no way means that I take the game any less seriously um I think there's also this whole concept of objectification that finding a person sexually attractive means that you no longer respect them as a fully rounded human being um which I also think is much less true about women fans of the game than men seem to think it is um, mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you as much as you want to know about Ian Desmond's butt, but that doesn't mean I don't respect him as a person. Um, and I think I think it's an interesting sticking point where, you know, we seem to be getting closer to understanding that fans of the game who are attracted to men, and it usually gets thrown at women, but in the general sense, anybody who's attracted to men, you can be attracted to the players and still be a serious fan, whatever that means. Um, we're starting to get a better understanding of that, it seems like to me. Um, but there's almost been this backlash of you're objectifying the players. It's a double standard. You couldn't say that if it were a woman. And it's like, well, if you're dehumanizing them, sure. But does finding someone attractive as a person require that you are dehumanizing them? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's the big, um, the big crux, I guess, is that like, well, for people saying this and they're usually men in people's mentions on Twitter that you're objectifying players or whatever. It's like, well, it may be true that you cannot express your attraction to somebody without dehumanizing them, but like, that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. Like stop putting that on me just because that's how you act towards people you're attracted to. Exactly. 
you're telling on yourself here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can find these guys attractive and still treat them as human beings. And if you can't, that sounds like a you problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I almost wonder if that isn't necessarily a hindrance for women fans, but, you know, another pressure, another form of gatekeeping. Because I think, and I don't know how well either of you could speak to it, but I know from personal experience, like, I have faced that. Um, I have gone to games where, you know, some man sitting nearby is like, oh, who's your favorite player? And I'm like, well, you know, Matt Carpenter, whoever, you know, I want to talk about at the time. And they're like, oh, well, I guess you want to marry him then. <laughs> no, I, I like to see him get on base. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I don't know if either of you could speak to that as well, but I think that's something that, again, some fans, particularly women, because of this, you know, heterosexual bias, I guess, um, face as fans of the game. Yeah, and then the, like, uh, well, if you are not just here for butts, then you must prove yourself by explaining to me the infield fly rule. Go. I literally learned the infield fly rule because of that question. Oh, no. And at this point, I no longer answer those people, but I didn't quite learn that for a while, and so... I've never seen the infield fly rule come into question in a game that I was watching. I mean, I've obviously seen games where it's been in play, but I've never seen it like come up as an issue. So I can safely tell you the only reason that I learned the infield fly rule was because of that question, which oh, no. is <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there definitely is this idea, whether internalized or externalized, this pressure um, to prove yourself as a fan. I think there's, again, there's been some backlash against that in recent years. I think it's getting a little bit better. Um, but then I think there's been, you know, the backlash against the backlash. And it's all very <laughs> cyclical. And can't we just watch baseball? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my my favorite, because I, I keep score. And even if I'm not, I'm pretty much always at a game with someone who is. And that person is pretty much always a friend of mine who's female or non-binary. The number of times we've gotten the who taught you how to keep score or I've never seen a girl who keeps score before. You oh ladies are hot. Oh, no. I, I, I swear to God, I almost you can. There are people who can testify to this. I almost punched somebody in the face um, last season <laughs> over us being told how hot we were for the fact that we kept score. And then this guy who was my grandfather's age just kept turning around and making comments and. I don't know what I would have done if he hadn't eventually stopped. Um, And that, I mean, keeping score is something that's rare enough as it is um, that people really see the need to comment when they see women or people that they perceive as women um, who are doing that. And it's sort of the extreme. I mean, it's, it's really the same as, you know, do you know the infield fly rule? Who taught you how to do that? Did your dad teach you how to do that? Did your boyfriend teach you how to do that? No, my friend Grace did. Shut up. <laughs> Last season, I I didn't catch a foul ball. I like leaned over the back of my seat so as to not spill my beer and scooped one up. And nice. then the uh, the usher, I gave it to a kid, which was a bad idea because that kid was kind of a jerk. Yeah. Uh, I really wanted to keep it, but I didn't want people to think I was being stingy. <laughs> but the <laughs> usher came over to like make sure that no one got hit. And I was like, oh, no, I, I just picked it up off the 
off the ground. Like it didn't catch it. And he was like, oh, well, did you break a nail picking it up? Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just everything. And then the guys say they don't know any women baseball fans. And it's like, well, no wonder, because <laughs> there are tons of us and none of us want to talk to you. Right. That's exactly how I view it as well. I think it's funny. Like, they they are telling on themselves. And they come to you like, oh, wow, like, you like baseball. I don't, I don't know any women who are into baseball like you. That's so cool. Right. Like, I know, like, 20. And I'm in a whole <laughs> right. Facebook group. And it's like, we're, we exist. But there's, there's so a reason. many of us. Either you're ignoring us or you've pissed enough of us off that we're actively not talking to you about it. Right. Like, there are so many of us. I grew up in Massachusetts. Do you know how many women Red Sox fans there are? Do you know how many women (laughs) Patriots fans are going out of their minds this weekend? (laughs) Like, if you don't know us, it's because of something you're doing. Exactly. (laughs) And it's interesting for me because my aunt was the one who first got me watching baseball. And then, so she was a Yankees fan and I was indoctrinated as a Yankees fan when I was little. And then I got beat up a lot at summer camp because I lived in Massachusetts (laughs) And so I decided I hated baseball for about 10 years. And then in college, a female college friend of mine was the one who introduced me to $6 Nats tickets. Um, And pretty much since then, with one or two exceptions, all of my close baseball friends have been women and non-binary people. I have maybe three dudes who are baseball fans that I'm friends with. And most of the important, I would say all of the important baseball figures in my life in terms of introducing me to things, you know, you were talking about your dad. For me, that was my aunt, just by chance. And then my friend who reintroduced me to it in college was female. And so, you know, people have this idea about women fans, you know, kind of existing within these male spaces. Oh, your dad must have been the one. Not that there's anything wrong if it is, but but that your dad must have been the one or your boyfriend must have been the one. And it's like, well, no, I was introduced to baseball by my aunt. I was reintroduced to baseball by a female friend. I co-host a podcast with two women. We've only ever had one man on the podcast ever. (laughs) Um, And at this point, the only way I could see us having another one would be if it were Sean Doolittle. (laughs) That would be amazing. Yeah, Yeah, that's the dream. Um, But yeah, there's just so many of us that if you don't know any, you are doing something wrong, and that is a you problem. I think that might be a nice place to wrap up. So fans, that's that. The story of another World Series goes into the record.